Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on the latest trends in digital health and how technologies are adopted in healthcare globally. Our topic today is financing for digital health startups. What are the mistakes entrepreneurs are making? Why do the United States seem as a better starting point compared to Europe? And how to look for support in the earliest stages of a company. The expert you will hear from is Jack Van Lint. Jack is the Corporate Finance Director at NLC The Health Tech Venture Builder, a healthcare accelerator and incubator from the Netherlands supporting early stage startups. Today's episode is supported by Technology Park Ljubljana, a Slovenian care for tech innovation lab supporting startups from various industries. Technology Park Ljubljana is one of the creators of the Slovenian Digital Health and MedTech Association HealthDay.si, which regularly organizes events for the digital health community in Slovenia. Mr. Lind, our today's speaker, visited Ljubljana for Health Day's 2018 annual conference, where he presented NLC HealthTech Venture Builder and gave startups his feedback regarding funding opportunities. A little bit of a warm-up question you're from the netherlands how often do you bike how often do i bike and uh in summer a lot maybe once twice a week on the race bike and sometimes to work but according to my colleagues i uh, i come mostly by car and not by bike but uh, i live very close to work so if it's an, if the weather's like this i will i will cycle to work yeah so you don't fall into the ordinary uh, inhabitant of Amsterdam where everybody bikes? No, 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 no. I, because I live outside of Amsterdam and our office is on the side. So, uh, But we have a lot of people bike to work. We're a very healthy, uh, healthy company. Try to be. NLC Health Ventures uh, supports startups. You're strong in supporting uh, prevention. So I'm curious to learn more about that. Prevention is something everybody likes to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's very important if you want to reduce costs. But the challenge is how can you uh, prove that you're preventing something that in the end doesn't happen, you know? Well, first of all, to be honest, I don't. I wouldn't say we're very good at prevention yet. As I said, we we've we've struggled also with with prevention. Uh, sometimes said that we would not concentrate on it, also because it's very difficult to create a business case. How do you know what you are preventing? Because you cannot prove it. But also, uh, who is going to pay for something prevention now if you don't know where that theoretical cost ends up? Prevention is something which is mostly interesting for governments and, and overall, but it's difficult to build a financial case. Having said that, we started the uh, the prevention challenge initially on uh, cardiovascular diseases, mostly because we strongly believe uh, we need we need to do something in prevention. Uh, so I think in that sense, our challenge is also in a bit of an experiment in see, to see if we can make it work. So what kind of metrics do you use when you are choosing startups that are approaching you in this segment? In general, when we when we when we start with an idea or we look at an idea, we first check the 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 
the quality of the of the of the innovation is this really new uh is it really and is it really something spectacular new if it's something that's improving on an existing procedure or existing solution uh why is it better uh because doctors are very conservative uh, and not easily convinced to change so we really t- test the quality of the idea uh we make an estimate in the beginning of uh the potential in size uh how we like to bring all the ideas to the patients but we are a company as well so we need to make sure we only spend time on things that uh, make sense financially so we test how big is the market how many patients each year uh what can we charge for this product uh how long does it take to develop how much do we need to invest so we do all those sorts of calculations as well and then it's very simple if it if it reaches a certain threshold and that's not very high then we continue uh because we also know that all those calculations in the beginning will probably be very different from what happens in the future you said an interesting thing how calculations change from the beginning of the presentation or the first yeah. meeting with the investor to when the idea yeah. is actually developed so in that sense uh, what would you advise to startups uh, in terms of how they should uh, present their projections? Because there's, there's, there is knowledge that all the projections are more or less exaggerated, so you make a good impression. True, but I always tell our CEOs that apart from what you think will happen and when you're being uh, realistic and careful, always paint the, uh, the big picture. So always show that you have, uh, if all goes well, a really big visionary endpoint. Uh, because also when you think of an investor, uh, if there's not the potential of something really big, a lot of investors will not be interested. I always say do two things. Say, okay, if this goes well, we can reach 50% of all the people in the world with this problem and I can do this and this. And that's really being huge because an investor will know Okay, the chance of success is not is not high, but there's at least a big possibility. And then next to that, have a more uh, sort of a worst case, small scenario. And yes, investors know that the, because if you say things are always exaggerated, but if you're clear that this is my visionary uh, uh, view, then that, then that's fine for an investor as well. Yeah, it's also about the vision of the startup founder, um, their optimism, and perhaps uh, seeing their leadership skills. Yes, I mean, if, if if you don't yourself believe in that what you're doing has a huge potential, why would I, if I'm the investor, believe uh, believe in it? Uh, and professional investors always take into account that things will take twice or three times as long and that you will require uh, more money than you're asking for. Uh, but you like to see the potential uh, because the all, in all cases with startups, uh, the chances of success are are uh, are difficult to so to speak. How many startups uh, are currently under your roof, and how many of them uh, come from other countries? At the moment, in the build, what we call the build phase, we have twenty three uh, ventures, and these have been there for a few years. So there, I think. Probably 80% is still uh, still from the Netherlands. 
if you look at our selection phase, so that's where we are. Those are the new candidates. There now we have about 40. And there I think it's the other way around. So there's 80% is uh, non-Netherlands. Non and those are, uh, uh, a lot of are German because we're really actively uh, working in Germany. There is a, a, a Finnish one. There's an American one. There's an Italian one. Uh, so that's more spread out. In terms of uh, your accessibility, I've got three questions startups are usually interested in. And that is, does a startup need to move to Netherlands uh, to work with you? How much equity do you take? And are you currently investing? Well, first, maybe one step back. Our ideal model is that we get involved before there's actually a startup. It's just really, really in, in a very early stage. Um, then do, do they move? No. So for instance, we, we're, uh, we are very active in Germany. Uh, the companies we set up there, we will set up locally. Uh, it will be a collaboration with, uh, the University of Heidelberg or uh, a hospital in Berlin. But we also then find local, uh, entrepreneurs to work there. So no. Uh, doesn't have to have to move the fact that we are uh, most of our people are in the Netherlands doesn't doesn't matter equity equity I forgot that one on purpose um it 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 varies if we get involved early and the idea is really at the university then sometimes we have a major large majority stake because we set up the company and for instance there are many universities that don't want to have shares so the shares are for uh, are partly ours, partly for management. If the company's already been there for a while, and we also look at that, so they've been there for one, two years, uh, then we negotiate what our role will be, uh, how much time we will spend, and then, yeah, it can be any any type of uh, of of split between the original founders and and our stake. Uh, in that sense, in those situations, it's really a, a custom-made solution. And the third question was... Are we investing? Uh, we, we haven't invested yet because, as I said, our original model, we didn't have a fund. So what we did was we spent, we invest in kind. So we, we invest time uh, and, and a lot of our, our people work on building the venture. Uh, so that's indirect investment in time and, uh, and effort of our people. Uh, we would invest small amounts. And then as soon as the venture needs money, me and my team, we would go outside to get funding. Uh, with the new fund, which we are which we're starting, we will be able to invest. But I think we will be fully operational with the NLC Capital uh, uh, mid-next year. And the reason is that we are also attracting uh, government uh, matching funds from uh, the European uh, Investment Fund. And that decision is going to be next year. So we'll, we'll wait for that and then we start. What's the most definite no for a startup that approaches you from your perspective? So where, what, are there any um, uh, specifics that you could mention about what startups should avoid when it comes to approaching investors? The most important thing is what I would call the engineer mentality. If you come and say, listen, this is what we've developed and it's really cool. And of course you have to be proud and, and, and happy about what you made. But if you are too focused on the technology, uh, which you see a lot, uh, and just, just being so happy it works, uh, and not thinking at all about, okay, but who wants this? 
uh, who is this for? And how it compares to our identity. Yes, and, and, and why is a doctor going to uh, choose this? Uh, and who's going to pay for it? And what is that person going to pay for it? And you you see a lot, and I will actually also see it with our technical people when they judge ideas. They get carried away with how 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 innovative it is, uh, but that in itself is not enough to get it get it into the market. You're a lawyer and a mathematician by background. Yeah. What uh, drove you to healthcare? Well, a few things. So. Uh, I've never worked as a mathematician, also never worked as a lawyer. So I worked in uh, in business development and in corporate finance. And when I came back from Asia a few years ago, I decided that uh, I wanted to do something different, a bit more innovative, a bit more complex, but also something with impact. And then, yeah, you start talking around. And actually, a friend of mine, she's a cardiologist. She said, there's a lot of innovation in, uh, in, in medtech. Uh, take a look at that. And then, yeah, one thing led to another. And I'm very happy to finish that, that I'm in a way doing something I know, raising funds and negotiating, but I'm doing it in a very innovative setting. And everything we do uh, eventually has impact on people's lives. So, uh, Healthcare definitely has a notion of a big social or societal impact. So it's very meaningful. On the other hand, uh, being in the space can be depressing, especially from the startup perspective, because it's so difficult to uh, succeed or to get the good idea on the market. Um, you visited Slovenia during the Health Day annual uh, conference, which is a conference of a digital health uh, society or digital health association in Slovenia. And one of the things that you mentioned is that there's more ideas out there uh, than um, actually come to the market in the end. What's your view how that could change? It needs a lot of things to change. First of all, I think it's important to be aware of it. And then it, leads, it needs a lot of parties. Uh, first of all, the institutions. Yeah, I met here with a representative of the Knowledge Transfer Office of the University of Ljubljana. Th that's the first part of the chain. I mean, if the Knowledge Transfer Officers are good at uh, finding in their institutes the good ideas and helping those people to go outside. That's the first step. Uh, I think it needs companies like like mine uh, of ours that then take take the idea further. Very important, as I said, is is funding. Not in the beginning, because the beginning works quite well. I mean, in the beginning, there's government subsidies. There are all sorts of things you can do. Uh, and also later stage, there is there's there's interest. But then there's this bit in the in the middle uh, where you need a combination of private initiative and also probably some government funds to uh, to support uh, the valley of death or whatever you want to call it. Because that also will will if people see that things succeed, uh, they will they will also be willing to make the step themselves. I think. What would you say? How should startups train themselves? to rejection and to the constant answer that they get, which is, please come back in half a year or a year, or a year when you will have this and that. So there's this constant cycle of uh, additional um, confirmations that you need as a startup to, to convince investors. Well, first of all, it's just a mentality, right? You have, I mean, it's the same for, for, for our company. We are also uh, in a way a startup and, 
lot of things go wrong. Uh, you have to get used to that. So you have to be able to te- deal with these uh, uh, almost uh, almost dead uh, experiences and not take no for an answer. I mean, every time we talk to investors or people and they say no, we take that as a starting point. At least they said something, right? If they said nothing, it would be worse. Uh, in terms of being told, come back, come back, I think it's a matter of finding the right investors. I mean, if some investor says, come back, if you have this, come back, assume you know they're not interested. They're just being polite. So how do you approach your own fundraising? Because investors are oftentimes in a very similar position as startups. You, startups need to raise funds from investors and investors need investments for their uh, funds. It's very true. I mean, if you, if you look at the bigger, the bigger funds, they actually have the problem that they have a lot of money, but they don't have good, good opportunities to invest in. So I try to tell them, yes, you have to, you have to move earlier uh, to be able to get the right ideas. If you keep on waiting uh, for the bigger and more successful things, uh, you will not get there. But it's a constant, it's a constant uh, discussion with them to, uh, to get them to also look at, at startups and not only look at, look at mature companies. For healthcare startups, the crucial thing when it comes to investors is to have somebody with the domain knowledge and connections so they can actually help you um, grow. From an investor's point of view, are you looking at um, contributors to the fund that come from some healthcare side or um, other uh, financial sources? So are you uh, how, so how how picky are you when it comes to looking for investments for the fund? Well, you try to be as picky as you can. I mean, if you're trying to raise money at some point, you always need to accept what's possible. Uh but we really look also for our investors in our company itself, look for people that have a link to the uh, to the field. So for the fund now we we had uh, the people that are that are uh coming in are insurance companies. Uh, we have a lot of discussions with the, uh, health funds. So the Dutch Heart Foundation, the Kidney Foundation, all these, uh, foundations that typically fund research, but that now also want to fund startups. So yes, we prefer to have people that are also part of the ecosystem, uh, and that add more than just, than just money. Um, we have corporates that are interested because they might be our exit partner. So, Yes, we hope to. F- hey, we, there's still room to 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 finalize the fund. We hope to get people involved that have have a connection to the uh, to the ecosystem. You've been active in business development, mergers and acquisition, investments in Asia and Europe. Is it possible to make any comparisons in terms of the culture, in terms of fundraising, in terms of anything? So, how does it defer to work there and here? It's very, it's very different. Uh, there's a, if you look at, because we also are actively, uh, discussing things in, in Asia, mostly on China and, uh, and now in Singapore. There's a lot of money in Asia, but it, it's, it's very conservative. On the other hand, Dutch and European VCs are also very conservative. Uh, if you want to really, I think it was one of the questions, if you really want to find an investment climate, which is, Uh, open to startups, then you have to go to the U.S. What's your experience in that sense? To which extent would you say the U.S. is 
more friendly or better than than Europe. It's not more friendly, but it's uh, we as a company we go to Silicon Valley once a year with a few partners. We we try to have contacts there. Uh, an issue is that all almost all American investors want the companies they invest in to be American. So you have to go and become a Delaware Inc. etc. But they are more they are more open to starting getting early. And the reason is, if you look at uh, uh, Silicon Valley, a lot of people with money there made money from their own startup. Uh, so they're still relatively young. They might be 30 years old. They, they set something up. They sold it. And they are better at assessing risks and also better at taking risks. Whereas if you look at, uh, for instance, here in Europe, wealthy families, they come from the steel industry. They come from very traditional businesses. And they will typically also be... 70 years old if they're individuals. So they don't they don't understand technology. I'm, I'm exaggerating. And also in general medtech is very difficult for people because hey, if you have some something spectacular new for oncology, it's difficult to understand as an outsider what the risks are. Silicon Valley has a lot of capital. That definitely holds true. However, if you're, let's say, an, a European startup, and if you think about moving to the Silicon Valley, it's a huge challenge. How can you even bear the risk of housing? Well, you don't have to go to Silicon Valley. You can move a bit out. But you're true. it's true. The, uh, uh, it's, it's suffering under its own success. So it's becoming too expensive to be there. Uh, salaries are too high. Um, but you don't have to go all the way. I mean, Silicon Valley, of course, is 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 a uh, wherever everybody wants to be. But in general, the U.S. investment uh, space is better. At the same time, we haven't we haven't sent any of our ventures there. Uh, we've definitely uh, made contact with people there. Um, it's mostly I realize that, and I'm a bit jealous that the European investors are are more conservative. There's a lot to be learned from the U.S. in terms of mentality, in terms of how quickly startups move and how quickly they develop. So maybe that's one thing that uh, European investors could think about, you know, sort of like similarly to student exchanges like startup exchanges where you would invest in a startup that you believe in, send the startup maybe to Silicon Valley to get some knowledge and some spirit out there and then move them back exactly and then and when i visited we we went to several you several all these buildings where you can rent a little space and you'll get some support plug and play is, uh, is the nicest one they've now started an office also in amsterdam and i think what we will try and do is get our most promising ventures to go there uh, spend three months uh, and and and, re- and network with the system um to learn from the way the way it's done How would you rank uh, Netherlands or maybe Amsterdam in a digital health sense on the European landscape? Berlin is most definitely one of the most booming places when it comes to the available support for the startups through accelerators, through grants, London, uh, Paris. So where is uh, Netherlands and Amsterdam in this story? Yeah, difficult to answer. I I mean... I think we are we are uh, really well positioned. Uh, the issue we have a bit is that we can improve the collaboration between the different centers. So I think, and that's also something the uh, the Dutch government and the people around are pushing, not to sort of say oh, we have Amsterdam and Rotterdam, Utrecht, but combine it. 
Um, from innovation point of view, there's a there's a relatively a lot happening in the Netherlands compared to our size. Um, so I think I, I, uh, I think we're very well positioned. I mean, the, the things like the European Med, Med, Medical Authority coming to Amsterdam. We have had three or four big pharma companies who are now moving to Amsterdam. So the the ecosystem in that sense, certainly on pharma, not a bit different than medtech, is is growing. Yeah, I think so. I think we can easily compete in that sense with Berlin or, or and definitely London after the Brexit. What would you say the advantages of the healthcare system in the Netherlands is compared to the other countries? Um, all the European countries have very different insurance healthcare systems. Netherlands, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Netherlands has a system where you are obliged to have the health insurance. However, there are multiple healthcare insurance companies that compete for their customers, which brings an additional um, factor when it comes to how flexible the healthcare system is in supporting innovation and uh, financing solutions? Yeah, difficult question. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of competition. As I said, there's four big insurance companies that basically have the uh, the market and there's a few smaller ones. Uh, each year at the end of the year, they oh, that was recently, they determine what the premium will be for next year. The differences are really limited. Uh, so there's not really a good competition there. Uh, as I said, oddly enough, there are mostly cooperatives, so they are a non-profit organization, so there's no big push from them. Whether that influences innovation, I don't know. If I look, there's a, there's a, within the four, there's a, certainly one who is, which is very uh, open to innovation and also invests in, in things. What are your experiences with the healthcare system? Are you lucky enough that you didn't have to experience it yet? Oh yeah, I've, I'm, 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 I'm 54 years old. I have all sorts of uh, things, of course, and I, I, I also really experienced the the, the, the inefficiencies and the the old fashionedness. Uh, I recently had a had a sports injury, uh, had to have X-rays, etc. And if you if you think of the way that goes, that you you have your picture taken, then you have to make an appointment to get the result you have to go there the, the doctor then looks at the screen to tell you what the problem is i then realized that could have all been done online there's no reason for me to visit uh, uh i can have a call i can have a skype call with the doctor and there's all sorts of ways to do that but it's really really traditional they expect you to go there you sit there and wait uh so from my own experience, I realized the, the, the total inefficiencies and the really old-fashioned way of thinking in the system. At the same time, I had to have an MRI, which was done by a private company, and they scheduled it on Sunday. So they said Sunday at 11 o'clock. Uh, so you see the difference between the entrepreneurial way of doing things. I have an MRI, which is an expensive machine. I have to make sure it's running all the time. And then the old-fashioned doctor who sits there. So... Yeah, I see both sides. Uh, in general, I think we have a very, very good, uh, as you have here, very, very uh, good and accessible uh, system. But there's there's uh, enormous room for improvement. Maybe just one last question. Since you got into healthcare, what's inspired you most? Is there any solution or any prediction for the future of digital health innovation that you are optimistic about? There are two, I think. So one is di diagnosis. Um, the fact that we have 
digital patient data means that theoretically we have access to all the patients with a certain condition, whereas in the past a doctor would, based on his experience or her experience, say, okay, I've seen five of these, and now we can actually use all. Uh, we have a very fast computers to deal with all the information, and we have deep learning algorithms to deal with it. So diagnosis will move from the traditional doctor to algorithms. And me as a person, if I would have something serious, I would prefer to be diagnosed by a computer than a doctor. Why? Unless it's a really good experienced doctor, I prefer the machine who has seen all the data. Uh, so I'm really enthusiastic there. And the other thing is the uh, this personalized medicine, specifically around all the all the genetic disorders. I believe that at some point we will be able to correct them before they actually happen. So we will be able to diagnose uh, specifically in an individual that something goes wrong five years before it becomes cancer and then we can correct it. So I think that's going to change dramatically and reduce the number of people who actually get ill. This was the 25th episode of Faces of Digital Health. If you want to hear more about funding perspectives for startups, check out some of the previous episodes attached in the show notes. Episode 18 of Medicine Today on Digital Health was titled What's Up with Early Stage Investments? Episode 12, Rethinking the Patient as Customer, Payment Models and Funding Options. And Episode 10 and 11, Tackling the German Healthcare System. As said, all the links are in the show notes. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast, and of course, do share what you like with your network.